Warning, binge mode contains adult content. Have you ever wondered how and when exactly Bellatrix Lestrange was made with child by Lord Voldemort? Well, if you're like us, you have, and we will discuss that here. But if that's not your kind of thing, please check out one of the other fine podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're wondering if the Dementors blew a new personality into Diddykins. Diddy Diddy Duddykins. Dear Sweet Popkin. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. I understand better now. I shall need, for instance, to borrow one from one of you before I go to kill Potter. The faces around him displayed nothing but shock. He might have announced that he wanted to borrow one of their arms. No volunteers, said Voldemort. Let's see. Lucius, I see no reason for you to have a wand anymore. Lucius Malfoy looked up. His skin appeared yellowish and waxy in the firelight, and his eyes were sunken and shadowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. My lord? Your wand, Lucius. I require your wand. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. I'm Allie Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, great website. It's great. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished feeding our guest of honor to Milton. A lot from Milt, but we'll just skip the <laughs> treats for today. <laughs> it's Ringer Senior Creative, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Milt, dinner. And then it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you offered Voldemort your wand, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group which is just for Binge Mode fans and Mal's mom, and which is an excellent place to wonder where our guy Diggle got that pocket watch. Please also head to com slash shop to check out our new Binge Mode merch. Oh, it's incredible. Truly great. We've got a My Good Friend Tom shirt designed by the wonderful, very talented Alicia Tinoyan here at TheRinger.com, a great incredible. website. Incredible. We've got Tough Look for My Guy shirts. That's right. And we've got Binge Moon Classic shirts in all the house colors. Let's go. Hufflepuffs, where are you? Ravenclaws, be proud. Gryffindors, you're loud. We hear you every day. <laughs> are you not going to acknowledge the Slytherins? The Slytherins are a proud bunch as well. We respect you all. Please yes. be nice in the Facebook group now that my mom is in there. That was not a joke. <laughs> Treat her with She's, care and, and kindness. She is slinging hot stuff in there. She's responding to actual comments, so just keep that in mind, please. And be gentle. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Love you. <laughs> so far, on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we've explored the first six books oh! and films. <laughs> Unbelievable. And various other aspects of the Harry Potter universe. And on today's episode, we're diving into the first three chapters. 
of the seventh and final book of this beloved saga, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Wow. I know. Unbelievable. I'm emotional. Can't believe we're already on the seventh book. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Oh, so deep. (laughs) Details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we slice open our fingers and trot on the teacups. Be careful. Just just reach into things. (laughs) Also, clean your trunk once. He's also like a very underrated theme that you pick up on immediately is Harry is disgusting in a slob. (laughs) (laughs) Not the cleanest. (laughs) There's a description of part of the detritus on the top of his chest that's like beetle eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not great. No, it's bad. (laughs) So unpack your trunk. Yes. Sift through your papers. And beetle eyes. (laughs) Because it's time to pack up. Our rucksacks. Mal, he always did himself well, Isaac. Peacocks. Amazing. But did he have plot points? We do. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's chapters 1 through 3 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot. The Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo. Snape and Yaxley arrive at Malfoy Manor one night in the summer, each bearing important news for Voldemort. Snape reveals that the Order of the Phoenix will soon move Harry from Privet Drive, and Voldemort says he will kill Harry personally on that night as he takes Lucius's wand to prevent another prior incantatum situation. Yaxley, meanwhile, says that he has performed the imperious curse on pious thickness. The thickness. <laughs> the thick daddy. <laughs> the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, and that the ministry could soon be in the Death Eaters' control. The meeting ends with Voldemort killing Charity Burbridge, R.I.P. Charity Burbridge, whose death was actually fucking agonizing. Terrible. Erstwhile Hogwarts professor for Muggle Studies and brave and courageous speaker of her mind. She died because of what she believed in. She wrote an op-ed that she believed in, and she died for it. Listen, we didn't really know her, but Phoenix Song. Phoenix Song for For Charity Charity Burbage, because she was a brave human being. And Nagini ate her corpse. And Yeah, dinner time, Nagini. Very tough look for Nagini here. (laughs) Extremely tough look for Nagini. (laughs) On Privet Drive. Meanwhile, Harry packs his things, as tonight is the night that he will leave the Dursleys' home forever, and thus see his mother's protective enchantment broken. He reads a pair of Daily Prophet articles about Dumbledore's death, the first an obituary from friend Elphias Doge, the second a tease for Rita Skeeter's 900-page biography on the headmaster, which hints at scandal in his past, the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. Harry reflects on how much he never learned about Dumbledore's life. Then Daedalus Diggle and Hestia Jones arrive to whisk the Dursleys to safety. Dudley very sweet. The redemption of Dudley Dursley. <laughs> very, 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 very sweetly says goodbye to Harry and expresses the hope that Harry will remain safe. Touching moment. Really touching moment, straight up, for real. It's lovely. I was moved by it. Me too. Mal, we have been careless and so thwarted by luck and chance. Those wreckers of... All but the best laid podcasts. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. 
So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters one through three of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is fallout. Before we begin our exploration of today's chapters, we want to first discuss the dedication and yes. epigraphs that grace the opening pages of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. They're brutal. They Fucking just, sad. It really is something to travel through these books again and then get to those and be like, wow, it's over. It's a knife in the heart. It yeah. really is, but in the best possible yeah. way. All seven books in the Harry Potter series begin with a dedication, all of which speak to someone or something meaningful in J.K. Rowling's life and Harry's journey from idea to reality to unrivaled publishing phenomenon, from Stone, for Jessica, who loved stories, for Anne, who loved them too, and for Di, who heard this one first, from Chamber, for Sean P.F. Harris, getaway driver and foul-weather friend, from Azkaban, to Jill Pruitt and Anne Keeley, the godmothers of swing, from Goblet, to Peter Rowling in memory of Mr. Ridley, and to Susan Sladen, who helped Harry out of his cupboard. That's a great one. Thank you, Susan. From Order, to Neil, Jessica, and David, who make my world magical. From Prince, to Mackenzie, my beautiful daughter, I dedicate her ink and paper twin. Imagine that being about you. Wow, truly magical. And then from Hallows, when you, dear reader, cracked your hardback at 12.01 a.m. on July 21st, 2007, or whenever this particular book came into your particular life, as you resisted the urge to scan the chapter names as you raced home to read the first words of one of the original seven Harry Potter novels for the last time. You saw this, quote, The dedication of this book is split seven ways. To Neil, to Jessica, to David, to Kenzie, to Di, to Anne, and to you. If you have stuck with Harry until the very end. You saw those words in the shape of a lightning bolt, the shape of Harry's scar. The shape containing not only seven dedications, but also the clue about the eventual seventh Horcrux. The clue of what Harry's scar signifies, his true connection to Voldemort, his standing as the seventh Horcrux. You saw, as well, the first instance of a soon-to-be-mirrored line. The, until the very end, that James Potter's form brought forth as his son turns the resurrection stone, will speak in comforting reassurance as Harry walks toward the forbidden forest and his sacrifice. And you saw, most incredibly of all, Joe Rowling speaking directly to you, reaching out through ink and paper and wrapping her arms around you, pulling you back into the pages like Harry tumbling into Riddle's diary or the pensive. It's the bookend moment to Sorcerer's Stones when Mr. and Mrs. Dursley woke up on the dole, Grey Tuesday, our story starts. That welcoming embrace that made you feel, believe that Harry's story was your story too. It's also a cousin to one of the most indispensable lines in the series and certainly one of the most important to us here at Binge Mode. Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? These lines matter because they remind us that we're not alone, that it's okay to fall into a story so fully that it becomes a part of who you are, that others are right there with you, getting lost in this world and then finding themselves in it too, that we together are as much a part of that world as it is of us. We stuck with Harry until the very end because he's a part of our imaginations, a part of our hearts, a part of our lives. And with these opening words zigzagging across these opening pages, J.K.R. reminds us that we're a part of Harry's, too. You turn the page and zip by the chapter titles, Desperate to Avoid Spoilers. Or maybe you read them all, Desperate for Any Guide, Any Bearing of What Might Be Coming. Either way, you found the beacon forlong in the form of the first of two epigraphs 
from the book. Oh, the torment bred in the race, the grinding scream of death and the stroke that hits the vein, the hemorrhage none can staunch, the grief the curse no man can bear. But there is a cure in the house and not outside it, no. Not from others, but from them, their bloody strife. We sing to you, dark gods beneath the earth. Now here, you blissful powers underground, answer the call, send help. Bless the children, give them triumph now. This comes from Aeschylus's The Libation Bears, the second of the trio of ancient Greek tragedies called the Orestia. The thematic parallels are myriad. A boy named Orestes with a scar on his brow attempts to avenge his father's death with the aid of his sister and against his mother, but even so. At one point, spoiler alert for the future, the libation bearer enthusiasts <laughs> out there, the pretense of Orestes' death is used to gain entrance to a castle. There's even a character in the trilogy named Hermione, and deeply symbolic serpentine imagery throughout. J.K. studied classics. The presence of Orestes' DNA in Harry is no accident, but acknowledging her influences is not the only function that this epigraph serves. The reader needs no awareness of Orestes and Electra to appreciate the tone of this passage, nor to glean the message embedded in that tone. The grinding scream of death, the curse no man can bear, answer the call, send help, and of course, bless the children, give them triumph now. There's pain here, loss, grief, despair, but also hope. The call to action, the belief in those already in the house, the belief in the children. It's impossible to read this and not anticipate the darkness that will populate the ensuing pages, but also impossible to read it and not put as much faith as possible in the penultimate word, triumph. The second epigraph shines yet another guiding light, forges yet another path for us to walk down, eyes open, led by our convictions, just as Harry will be by his. Quote, death is but crossing the world as friends do the seas. Man, you remember reading these for the first time? Yeah, they're brutal. Sobbing right away. <sighs> they live in one another still, for they must needs be present, that love and live in that which is omnipresent. In this divine glass they see face to face, and their converse is free as well as pure. This is the comfort of friends, that though they may be said to die, yet their friendship and society are, in the best sense, ever present, because immortal. This comes from More Fruits of Solitude, from William Penn, the Quaker leader and founder of Pennsylvania, who wrote aphorisms and maxims about life and death and faith. Readers will surely recognize in this passage the same heart that informs so many of the Harry Potter series' signature lines about death and loss. After all, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. You think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us. It is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness, nothing more. Do not pity the dead. And on the list goes. From the opening pages of Stone, exploring the imprint that loss leaves has been one of the story's central missions. Mm -hmm. Harry's tale begins with his parents' death. Rowling has spoken openly, movingly, about how her mother Anne's death shaped this story. And Rowling's faith did, too. Religious themes and imagery have been present throughout the entire series, and we will speak at length in our Deathly Hallows discussion about the biblical parallels stitched throughout Harry's journey of sacrifice and revival. We'll see biblical texts on the tombstones in Godric's Hollow, and we see that imagery here, too, in these opening excerpts. In 2007, Rowling told reporters on her open book tour that she waited until this point in the story to overtly quote religious texts, not because she was afraid of how people would respond, but because she was worried about forecasting too much about Harry's endgame. Resurrection has always been present in this tale. Phoenixes play such a central role for a reason. But so too has the declaration that no spell can reawaken the dead. But for Rowling and for Harry and for many readers, that acceptance is not the closing of a door. It's the opening 
of a life-altering, perspective-altering possibility. That death is, as Penn writes, but crossing the world. Another journey, the next great adventure. That when our loved ones leave us on this mortal plane, they still stay with us forevermore in another deeper sense. That immortality in the form Voldemort is seeking is corrupt and foul in part because it fails to recognize this. That death is not weak, is not the end, but rather the beginning of something else. Another phase, another type of presence. An opening at the close. Penn's words and Rowling's reason for choosing them washed over readers with the heaviness of a crashing wave. Promising death, foretelling loss, guaranteeing the fall of some of our friends. But they cleansed and led us to, asking us to believe not in the end, but in the eternal. Rowling said on that same book tour that she'd known since Chamber of Secrets that she'd used these two quotations as her epigraphs in Book 7, noting that one is pagan, the other from a Christian tradition, but both of a piece with something fundamental about Harry's path and message. Quote, I always knew that if I could use them at the beginning of Book 7, then I'd queued up the ending perfectly, she said. If they were relevant, then I went where I needed to go. They just say it all to me. They really do. We agree. Chapter 1, The Dark Lord Ascending. Albus Dumbledore is dead, gone. The symbol of hope for so many extinguished from the world. The Hogwarts headmaster guided Harry, protected his students, built and led the Order of the Phoenix, attempted to show the Ministry of Magic the way to the light. He did plenty that was seen and much more that was unseen. Only the chosen few ever knew, and even then, only when he chose to share. Dumbledore and the Ministry did not always agree, often stood, in fact, in active opposition to each other following Voldemort's resurrection. Fudge denied the Dark Lord's return for a maddening, incalculably costly span of time. Scrimger, battle-hardened and pragmatic, sought to meet the truth of Voldemort's rise head-on, but not in ways on which he and Dumbledore and then he and Harry agreed. The Order of the Phoenix has not crumbled, but it's missing its beating heart. Its mission is shifting in many respects in this initial post-Dumbledore moment from active to passive, working, as we'll see in the coming chapters, to protect Harry, working simply to stay alive. They're on the back foot now. The Ministry of Magic has given us little to believe in before, but at this moment— with the order working to regroup after losing its leader, only the ministry seems positioned to muster a sufficient organized resistance against Voldemort. Will they be able to stand against the darkness? Our first glimpse into that darkness comes on page one. As two men who will soon realize are Severus Snape and Corbin Yaxley apparate in front of Malfoy Manor, wands out. We quickly see that in just the few weeks since Albus's death, Voldemort's efforts to undermine the ministry from within are already in full swing. Voldemort has waited really for his entire life for Dumbledore to be out of the way. Now that he is, he's not waiting anymore. From the book, news, Yaxley asks, the best, replies Snape. They've arrived for a meeting of the Dark Lord's inner circle, and we sense immediately how anxious Voldemort's minions are to please him. It was a little trickier than I expected, Yaxley says, but I hope he will be satisfied. You sound confident that your reception will be good. Snape, serving as we'll learn at book's end, a different master entirely, does not engage beyond a nod. But even just from Yaxley's perspective, this exchange shows us so much. The wars within the wars, the frantic race Voldemort's minions engage in to please him and best their fellows. I found this chapter to be some of the richest observational mm -hmm. human behavior writing, mm -hmm. really, in the whole book. Just little things that really show you when someone's nervous and wants to please someone and yeah. trying to undermine someone else to please another person. Right. It's like And to establish that instantly with a group of people you, as a reader, have never gotten to see directly. It's, it's really incredible stuff. She's the best. She's very good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yaxley and Snape make their way to, and then straight through, the wrought iron gates, their dark marks granting them entrance, turning the metal to wisps of smoke. And there is something deeply unsettling about this image, which recalls the fashion in which Voldemort's troops were able to break through the barrier to the top of the astronomy tower in a way that members of the Order and the DA could not in the moments before Dumbledore's death. Their marks granting them the access and creating the divide that Voldemort seeks to employ at large with his reign. But it recalls something else, too, a parallel that disturbs in a different fashion altogether. Crossing Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Remember what Fudge told the Muggle Prime Minister at the beginning of Half-Blood Prince? The trouble is, the other side can do magic, too. Mm-hmm. The moment when Harry first learns how Platform 9 and 3 quarters works, with Mrs. Weasley's best do it at a bit of a run if you're nervous words, guiding him into the magical world and the eventual embrace of friends and family alike, unlocks so much for Harry and the reader. It was a portal into infinite possibility. And to see that same magic used for ill here, for keeping people out rather than letting them in, for manufacturing something foul behind its protective barrier, is oddly crushing. Snape and Yaxley make their way past Lucius's peacocks towards the handsome manor home, with the diamond-paned windows and the sound of a fountain tinkling in the distance, hedges guiding their walk. This is real wealth. Yeah. Old wealth. The kind that young Tom Riddle never had access to at the orphanage. The kind that drew him, like the trophies in which he'll eventually secrete parts of his soul as he gains skill and awareness and power. The kind that represents a place in the old Pure blood wizarding order, real belonging. It isn't enough for Voldemort to collect followers who possess these symbols of status and standing. He must then take it from them, lord it over them, imprisoning them in the source of their own appeal. When Snape and Yaxley enter the drawing room, they find Voldemort at the head of a long table, around which sit his silent Death Eaters. And hanging above the table, illuminated by the light of a roaring fire, is a sight to chill the blood. An unconscious woman hovering upside down in the air, quote, revolving slowly as if suspended by an invisible rope and reflected in the mirror and in the bare, polished surface of the table below. No one at the table pays this sight any mind except for, quote, a pale young man, Draco Malfoy, who, crackling with barely concealed terror, quote, seemed unable to prevent himself from glancing upward every minute or so. Voldemort tells the men where to sit, and he puts Snape by his side close enough to touch. He asks for their reports, and Snape goes first. My lord, the owner of the phoenix intends to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety on Saturday next at nightfall. In the two-year wait between Prince and Hallows, readers parsed every word of the text looking for clues to Snape's true allegiance, either hoping to convince themselves and others that Dumbledore's death was part of some secret long game or hoping to quiet that relentless hope in others for good. Within pages, we heard Snape speak Harry's name, the fallout of his choice atop the tower seemingly so clear. He killed Dumbledore, and now he's selling out Harry, too, doing his part to serve up the Chosen One for the Dark Lord. Of course, we'll learn in The Prince's Tale at this moment, like so many others that we could not understand at the time, concealed Snape's true intentions. He and Dumbledore's portrait decided that Snape must give Voldemort the true date of Harry's intended departure from Privet Drive so as to maintain his position in Voldemort's camp as a most well-informed aide, with Snape suggesting the Polyjuice Potion-aided decoy plan to a confunded Mundungus Fletcher to help ensure Harry's survival. Saturday at nightfall, repeated Voldemort. Harry believed that Dumbledore was his last protector. 
Dumbledore actually was Snape's. Nothing at all stands between Snape and the Dark Lord's vengeance now. Nothing except Snape's nerve and ability. From the book, his red eyes fastened upon Snape's black ones with such intensity that some of the watchers looked away, apparently fearful that they themselves would be scorched by the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. Here, rolling his brilliantly drawing attention to Snape's eye color and his eyes boring into another's. About 600 or so pages before she draws attention to this once again in a far more memorable moment. She's also showing us directly what we know has been transpiring for so long. Voldemort, quote, the most accomplished legitimans the world has ever seen using that skill against Snape, trying to read his mind and catch him in a lie. But Snape's skill is an Oculman's triumphs. Remember whether he was lying to Voldemort or Dumbledore, he was successfully tricking one of them. Yes. And here we see it transpire. Snape's nerves must be made of superhuman stuff. His cover might have been blown in any number of ways over the years, and having to contend with the Dark Lord's mental penetration is a daunting and unceasing task. Snape has to hide his true thoughts while not appearing to be hiding them or raise suspicion in any way. Once again, he succeeds, fooling his master. Voldemort asks for the source of information, and when Snape says simply, from the source we discussed, elaborating no further in front of the assembled, Voldemort seems satisfied. Yaxley, however, is not. From his seat, down the table, far away. From the place of honor that Snape occupies, he speaks. My lord, I have heard differently. Hmm. He says that the homie Dolish, poor, poor sweet poor, Dolish, poor, for whom the very tough looks continue. Yeah, Dolish, not having a great couple books, very tough for our guy Dolish. Uh, quote, let slip that Harry will be moved on the 30th, the night before his 17th birthday. And this exchange encapsulates well the dangerous game. That Snape is playing. Remember how Dumbledore described Voldemort's early gang of followers back in Tom Riddle's Hogwarts days? Quote, they were a motley collection, a mixture of the weak seeking protection, the ambitious seeking some shared glory, and the thuggish gravitating toward a leader who could show them more refined forms of cruelty. Today's Death Eaters reflect their forerunners in myriad respects, and they're not an inherently cooperative group. They simultaneously fear Voldemort and desire to be close to him. They want victory for their leader and his vision, and thus for themselves, but they also want to secure their own position in that order. Think about how Bardai Moody spoke of his one-time peers in Goblet of Fire. Quote, if there's one thing I hate more than any other, it's a Death Eater who walks free. Think about how in Spinner's End, Bellatrix challenged every choice that Snape has ever made, making no effort to mask her dislike. I don't trust you, Snape, she said, as you very well know. Think of how Draco, who was so desperate for help and guidance that he wept into a sink and shared his sorrows with a ghost, refused Snape's efforts to assist. I know what you're up to. You want to steal my glory. <laughs> Serving Voldemort does not mean being selfless. No. <laughs> no. Followers mirror their leaders, and there's nothing selfless or gracious about Voldemort's ways. Greed and arrogance rule. And so his followers constantly seek to protect their own standing, either with Voldemort while he's strong or yes. out in civil society once he falls, by undermining whomever is ahead of them, next to them, or creeping up behind them in the pecking order. Yeah. Always dreading that Voldemort's cruel eyes might fall upon them. The Death Eaters delight in them falling instead upon one of their colleagues. Snape, though, stands his ground, treating Yaxley's objection with such utter dismissiveness that he— Though in truth, unmotivated by that which drives Yaxley in this battle, 
achieves what Yaxley was seeking, cracking his case under the crunch of a challenging boot. Quote, my source told me that there are plans to lay a false trail. This must be it. No doubt a confundus charm has been placed upon Dawlish. <laughs> this next line is so savage. It would not be the first time he is known to be susceptible. <laughs> Again, just immensely tough stuff for Dawlish. Basically a punchline among all of wizarding kind. Poor cauliflower brain Dawlish has <laughs> been owned by everyone. <laughs> Second, Note how Snape operates so effectively, using truth Mm -hmm. as his weapons in equal measure with the lies. The Confundus Charm case is so convincing in part because it is, as we will learn, what Snape actually did to Mundungus to put the decoy plan in motion. Again, Snape does not name his source here. Signaling his special place in Voldemort's circle, the rare trust and access that he possesses, a source of sincere jealousy for Yaxley, baby mama Bella, and so many others in that room. Yaxley doubles down, saying Dawlish seems certain of the information, but of course he would be, Snape points out, if he were confunded. Severus treats Yaxley's points like he treated Harry's attacks at the end of Half-Blood Prince, passing over them as quickly and with as much derision as a cauldron full of curdled potion. I assure you, Yaxley, the Auror Office, will play no further part in the protection of Harry Potter. The Order believes that we have infiltrated the Ministry. And when he says it, it's hard to believe as a reader, knowing what we know about the Order's mistrust of the Ministry, that Snape is wrong. A nameless member of the party giggles wheezily as he says, The Order's got one thing right then. This cuts through the bickering with a clear reminder of the standing and the stakes. Voldemort is working to bring down the Ministry's shields, not to shatter the institution, but to make it his own and use it as yet another cog in his machine. When Yaxley makes a press his point, Voldemort silences him, turning back to Snape to ask where the Order will hide Harry next. At an order member's home, Snape says. The place will be quite secure, of course. Once Potter's there, Snape says, getting to him will be difficult unless the effort to undermine the ministry is successful by the time Harry is moved, allowing the Death Eaters to learn of and undo the protective enchantments. Voldemort has immense power, and his ruthlessness and his ability to slow discord from within can often lead us to overlook the fact that he's heading up a very small operation. There's only a few people involved. They don't yet have a full base of operations or ample resources beyond that which the Death Eaters, many of them recently escaped from Azkaban, can muster. I mean, they're basically living off the Malfoy's dime at this point. Voldemort seeks what all terrorists in the end seek, legitimacy. The ministry is a sham in many respects, but its infrastructure, its vast stores of knowledge and artifacts, its symbolic standing in the wizarding world would amplify and secure Voldemort's power in ways that are too terrifying to contemplate. From the book, Well, Yaxley... Will the ministry have fallen by next Saturday? My lord, I have good news on that score. I have, with difficulty, and after great effort. Way to fucking brag. We get it. I can't tell you in words how difficult this was, but (laughs) succeeded in placing an imperious curse upon pious thickness. As the current head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, thickness meets regularly with Minister of Magic Scrimgeour as well as other ministry heads. Voldemort says, okay. That's a start, but only a start. He wants Scrimgeour, quote, surrounded by our people before he enacts his coup. One failed attempt on the minister's life will set me back a long way. He actually is confident that Pius will position them well and eager to boast, of course, about his role in making this all possible. It will, I think, be easy, he actually says. Now that we have such a high-ranking official under our control, 
to subjugate the others. And then they can all work together to bring Scrimgeour down. One book ago, the ministry began dispensing safety guidelines, warning of the dangers of the imperious curse, working to put citizens on their guard about imposters in their lives. Attempts had already been made to use the imperious curse to infiltrate the Muggle government. Voldemort may be impatient, may want his minions to have made even more headway than they have, but mere weeks after Dumbledore's death, they have a member of the Minister of Magic's inner circle under their power, and it's terrifying how quickly the established order is decaying. And more terrifying still to consider how hard it can be to see that decay until the rot is too far gone. Voldemort says that even with the thickness in place, it seems unlikely that the Ministry will be in his hands before Harry is moved. They must then attack while he's being moved. Yaxley, poor fool, is so eager to win back Voldemort's attention that he boasts of having spies within the Department of Magical Transport who can tell them if Harry operates or uses the flu network. Of course, as Snape immediately notes, the Order will not use any form of transport or communication that the Ministry can monitor. Quote, they mistrust everything to do with the place, Snape says. All the better, Voldemort replies. He will have to move in the open. Easier to take by far. Since Dumbledore's death, we have naturally focused most of our energy primarily on the way that his loss has affected Harry and Hogwarts in the fight against Voldemort. But there's fallout for the Dark Lord, too. And so once again, J.K. Rowling chooses brilliantly to briefly break away from Harry's point of view, giving us access to something that Harry does not see, putting us in a room with the people Harry hates most. Mm -hmm. Voldemort, Snape, Bellatrix, Draco, Lucius. Showing us the repercussions of the choices they've made. The Ministry is, in many respects, a sideshow for Voldemort. Dumbledore was a real concern, the only one he ever feared. And with Albus off the board, there's no longer anything to distract the Dark Lord from his long-running obsession with Harry Potter, an obsession that began when Snape passed along an incomplete version of Trelawney's prophecy, leading Voldemort to Godric's Hollow and his first downfall. Voldemort has never been able to abide that defeat at the hands of an infant Harry, nor the ones that came after. There are stains on his reputation that as soon as he rose from the cauldron in the graveyard, he boasted of correcting, editing out of history. Quote, You see, I think, how foolish it was to suppose that this boy could ever have been stronger than me. Voldemort told his Death Eaters in the graveyard the night that he returned to his body. Speaking of Harry's survival as an infant and victory over Voldemort's servant Quirrell, speaking in a way to the doubt that he let rule him yep. when he acted on the prophecy in the first place. Quote continues, but I want there to be no mistake in anybody's mind. Harry Potter escaped me by a lucky chance. And I am now going to prove my power by killing him here and now in front of you all when there's no Dumbledore to help him and no mother to die for him. Voldemort, of course, did not prove his power then, nor did he manage to kill him the next year in the halls of the Ministry of Magic to which he had deliberately lured him. Whoops. Since he heard the prophecy, he has been ruled both by fear over the threat that Harry posed— and a desire to prove to all that Harry posed no threat at all, <laughs> almost in equal measure. But now there's no other barrier to his domination. He must beat Harry, and he must do it directly. Quote, there have been too many mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned, he tells the assembled at Malfoy Manor. Some of them have been my own, you think? Oh! <laughs> that Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs. Now, this is a rare bit of introspection and self-awareness yes. from Voldemort. An instinct for accountability that's so often dwarfed by his hubris and arrogance. Mm -hmm. But even this stems from greed. Yep. Not from a true sense of culpability or responsibility or regret. At book's end, in their final dance, Harry will issue the ultimate challenge to his foe. 
be a man, he'll say. Try. Try for some remorse. But Voldemort is not capable of remorse, nor of paying proper credit to his foes. I have been careless, he continues, as his Death Eaters sit anxiously, awaiting his blame, and so have been thwarted by luck and chance, those wreckers of all but the best laid plans. But I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter, and I shall be. But he still understands so little. Yeah. He has learned about the connection between the twin cores of his wand and the wand that chose Harry. But he still doesn't realize that chalking up Harry's 1972 <laughs> Miami Dolphins-esque run to chance is not what will cleanse him. Exactly right. It's what will doom him. The effect those twin cores caused when used against each other in battle in the graveyard in Little Hangleton just after Voldemort's resurrection was exceedingly rare. Not something for which Voldemort was prepared. He is now. To try to kill Harry, Voldemort says, Hey man, I gotta borrow a wand. Anyone got a wand? <laughs> this is a shocking request. Shocking. Yeah. Yes. The relationship between a wand and its wielder is intimate and intensely personal. From the book, he might have announced that he wanted to borrow one of their arms. And of course, when Voldemort asks, he's not asking. <laughs> yes. It's not a request. No volunteers, said Voldemort. <laughs> Let's see. Lucius, I see no reason for you to have a wand anymore. This is akin to saying that he sees no reason for Lucius to exist anymore. No reason for him to do magic, to be who he is. The Malfoys have been a target of Voldemort's disdain ever since Lucius's failure to secure the prophecy at the end of order. Voldemort's version of petty vengeance was to induct Draco into the Death Eaters and set him on an impossible mission, killing Dumbledore. That's done now. Yes. But Voldemort has no praise or pity for the Malfoys. Their continued humiliations amuse him. And remember how he spoke upon his return in the graveyard of how Lucius had disappointed him, of how he expected more faithful service in the future— Add the reckless deployment of the diary, which Lucius did not know was a horcrux, and the prophecy failure, and Voldemort has no reason to trust Malfoy. But why kill him when he can toy with him and use him, take advantage of his standing and wealth, emasculate him, and use his family as leverage? The Dark Lord, after all, is still dunking on Wormtail <laughs> after Pettigrew literally single-handedly <laughs> brought him back to full form. He milks Nagini. <laughs> What hope does the constantly whiffing self-centered Lucius have? Lucius taking his cue from the pressure of Narcissus's hand, a really touching moment under yeah. the table as she continues to do what she must to keep her family together and alive, gives over his wand. What is it? Elm, my lord, whispered Malfoy. And the core? Dragon, dragon heartstring. The following exchange is a devastating, insightful bit of observational writing from J.K. And there's so many moments just yeah. like this in this chapter. Voldemort, quote, drew out his own wand and compared the lengths. Lucius Malfoy made an involuntary movement. For a fraction of a second, it seemed he expected to receive Voldemort's wand in exchange for his own. We have dunked copiously <laughs> on the Malfoys in this podcast. Yeah. But this is such a human and relatable moment. Yes. This broken man back from Azkaban, in essence, prisoners along with his son and wife in their own home, grasping for a lifeline to the source of his identity. It's such a relatable moment, and Voldemort delights in it, delights in savaging Lucius's presumptuousness. Give you my wand, Lucius, my wand? And the Death Eaters laugh. I have given you your liberty, Lucius. Is that not enough for you? Lucius is reaping what he's sown, yes, but this isn't liberty, not really. No. When Voldemort asks why Lucius and his family seem so displeased 
with Voldemort's presence there. He meets Lucius's feeble nothing with such lies. And that hiss calls forth Nagini, who, to many of the assembled Death Eaters' horror, slithers across the floor and then up Voldemort's chair, wrapping itself around his shoulders. That's another one of those observational moments that Jason is mentioning, when we see how even his own followers fear him and are repulsed in some level by what and who he is. Quote, why do the Malfoys look so unhappy with their lot? Is my return, my rise to power, not the very thing they profess to desire for so many years? Well, good question. The Malfoys, like everyone else on either side, are now forced to reckon with the consequences of their choices, the fallout that stemmed from picking their chosen side. Remember Quirrell's words to Harry in stone. There is no good and evil. There is only power, and those too weak to seek it. Well, when the weak seek it and are then deprived of it so cruelly, it looks like this. Draco is afraid, in his own home, by his own parents' side, to even make eye contact with the man he's sworn to serve. And here Bellatrix speaks, where her sister will not, calling it an honor to have him in their family home. Quote, there can be no higher pleasure. Well, well, (laughs) more on that in the seven. (laughs) Damn, do your job, Dark Lord. Really not working that thing. Well, when you think about like how smooth all his other features are, maybe (laughs) there's just like no friction at all. I think he's probably just not very interested in yeah, it's the like other a, person. Yes, not at all. That said, the snake-like tongue could do interesting things if he cared to Go cry. down on you, Bella. Have I not done enough? <laughs> Have I not broken you out of Azkaban? <laughs> Give you an orgasm? Surely you must be joking, Bellatrix. <laughs> Bellatrix leans toward Voldemort. Quote, For mere words could not demonstrate her longing for closeness. Hello! (laughs) Pour one out for the cuck, Rodolphus Lestrange, who is presumably at the fucking table? Rodolphus is is just like pulling at his collar like, oh my god. My wife. My wife. (laughs) (laughs) No higher pleasure, repeated Voldemort his head tilted a little to one side as he considered Bellatrix. That means a great deal, Bellatrix, from you. Ooh. He's into it, maybe. I think he's into it. (laughs) It's all really utilitarian for him. Yeah. It's It's all about legacy. But also, he's into it. What, are you going to turn down a little sex on the way? Bellatrix, upon hearing this, flushes. She tears up. (laughs) So moved by her longing and lust... And then her baby daddy savagely dunks on her in front of everyone, ending this very brief moment of false tenderness. Quote, no higher pleasure even compared with the happy event that I hear has taken place in your family this week. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, my guy. And then he clarifies. Her niece has married, quote, the werewolf, Remus Lupin. You must be so proud. The laughter at Bellatrix and Narcissa's expense is so loud that it blocks out even Nagini's angry hiss. Again, these people are on the same side. Yeah. Bellatrix is one of the few alive who was loyal enough to Voldemort to actually go to Azkaban for him rather than renounce him after his downfall. She will be revealed in Cursed Child to be the mother of his child. Again, more on this in the seven. And yet she is subjected to as much shame and misery as anyone else. This is the lot 
that Voldemort's followers have chosen. This is what life in his orbit looks like. Fenrir Greyback's outside peeing on a log like, hey, what? What? <laughs> Bellatrix naturally renounces that branch of her family tree, but Voldemort isn't finished. What say you, Draco? Will you babysit the cups? That's a good line. Draco is terrified. Lucy is fully cowed. Narcissa guiding them with a subtle shake of her head. Do not engage. Don't be provoked. Enough of the jokes, Voldemort, with Bella looking at him desperately for rescue, says that many of their family tree have grown diseased. You must prune yours, must you not, to keep it healthy? He'll grant Bella the chance to do just that. From the book, and in your family, so in the world. We shall cut away the canker that infects us until only those of the true blood remain. This man, remember, is the son of a muggle man who didn't want him, and a mother who came from the gaunt line that was so inbred it sprouted mental illness and ultimately destitute decay. The very name he's crafted himself is an effort to run from that. His choice is the fallout from that long-ago abandonment and the ensuing corruption of his mind and soul that learning of his magical ability and then Slytherin heritage spawned. Remember, I knew I was special, he said. Voldemort raises Lucius's wand and points it at the upside-down figure, waking her so that she struggles against her invisible restraints. He asks Snape if he recognizes, quote, our guest. Snape and everyone else look, and Snape, his face the mask that he's perfected over time, says... Ah, yes. Voldemort asks Draco, too. We learn that the woman is Charity Burbage, who taught Muggle studies at Hogwarts. She looks at Snape and says, Severus, please, marrying Dumbledore's final plea. We thought for his life, but actually for his death, unknowingly reminding Snape of his promise, his commitment, his need to maintain the charade no matter what the cost. Charity, Voldemort says, also wrote, quote, an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet. She would have us all mate with muggles or no doubt werewolves. There's no laughter in the room now, no mistaking Voldemort's, quote, anger and contempt. No mistaking either how easy murder is for him, how little humanity he has left, what everyone in that room has endorsed just through their presence. There are tears in Charity's eyes as she looks at Snape, who looks back impassive. Voldemort, without additional preamble, issues the killing curse, and Charity crashes dead onto the table below. Dinner, Nagini, said Voldemort softly, and the great snake swayed and slithered from his shoulder onto the polished wood. <sighs> Quite an opening. Yeah. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Put a little mischief in your Mary. When Universal Orlando unwraps a resort-wide celebration starting November 17th. Universal Studios Florida and Universal's Islands of Adventure are transformed with festive decor and brilliant lighting. Enjoy special holiday treats and drinks, plus a dazzling projection show. Honestly sounds delightful. And be sure to visit their newest park, Universal's Volcano Bay. Oh! At this water theme park, thrills and relaxation flow in perfect harmony. The palm trees are still swaying, the Florida sun is shining, and the water is delightfully warm. No doubt heated by the lava deep below the Krakatau Volcano. Plus, when you stay in the heart of the action at one of Universal Orlando's resort hotels, every morning you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water taxi or shuttle an hour before other guests. Woo! Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Dell. Yeah, the Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, mm. brilliant sound clarity, yes. and smooth streaming. Love it. Dell Cinema Technology makes the XPS 13 
perfect laptop for people who watch things on their laptop. Mm. Call 800 by Dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash Dell Cinema. And now back to binge mode. Chapter two, In Memoriam. Harry at last. After two real-world years of worrying about our beautiful boy, wanting to take away some of his pain, we return to him to find him in an all-too-familiar state, bleeding. He has cut his hand, and as he makes his way to the bathroom, he steps on a teacup that will soon realize Dudley has sweetly left for him. Harry has to clean his wound the old muggle way, as he's still four days away from coming of age, and thus being able to use magic at all times. It's a nice little reminder as Harry prepares to set out on a fiercely independent journey of how constraining the system can still be, how very difficult it is, especially in the magical world, to truly go off the grid. It's also a painful reminder, both literally and figuratively, of how much Harry still has to learn. Quote, he had to admit to himself that this jagged cut in his finger would have defeated him. He had never learned how to repair wounds. Which, he realizes in this moment, is a pretty big oversight in light of what he's about to set out to do. He makes a mental note to ask Hermione and returns to his room, where he's been emptying his school trunk for literally the first time since initially packing it six years ago, which is fucking disgusting, Harry, my guy. Yes. (laughs) Take a shower while you're at it. Brush your teeth, everything, like the whole thing. (laughs) Harry, just everything. Bathe, Uh, do everything. Anyone else who's about to spend a year camping in the woods would be like, what about my hygiene? And Harry's like, I'm good. I'm good. I can brush my teeth once a week. (laughs) (laughs) In the process of cleaning out the trunk, he sliced his finger, and he returns now with more care, looking for the source of the injury, but also taking us with him on a journey through the years, each object in his trunk representing some part, however small, of his Hogwarts experience and thus his magical life. He sees the support Cedric Diggory and Potter Stinks badges that his classmates wore during the Triwizard Tournament, the tournament that led him to the graveyard where Voldemort rose. He sees the sneakoscope that Ron sent him from Egypt, the one they thought broken, that was really alerting them to Scabbers' true nature. I love these little look-backs that she gives you periodically throughout this book. He sees the locket in R.A.B.'s note, the object that he and Dumbledore had traveled to the cave to retrieve on the night of Dumbledore's death. Every object is a testament to a moment, however big or small, that had some bearing on Harry's life that had some impact on who he is and what he's doing now. And the source of his finger wound is no exception. Quote, he recognized it at once. It was a two-inch-long fragment of the enchanted mirror that his dead godfather Sirius had given him. Harry reaches around for more, but nothing else is left but dust, quote, which clung to the deepest layer of debris like glittering grit. A layer of sorrow coding the roadmap of Harry's life. In his hand is the surviving fragment of the mirror that could have spared Harry his doomed trip to the Department of Mysteries that he and Sirius could have used to communicate while Sirius was still alive. And that, in one of the series' most agonizing moments, Harry briefly thinks he'll be able to use to find Sirius after his godfather fell beyond the veil. It is a shard of regret Mm-hmm. A jagged reminder of the cost of Harry's mistakes, but also of what he's fighting to protect. His friends, his family, the ones that he loves. Harry looks into the mirror shard and sees for now. 
only his own eye, then places it on the paper to attempt to, quote, stem the sudden upsurge of bitter memories, the stabs of regret and of longing the discovery of the broken mirror had occasioned. He returns to his trunk, emptying it completely and sorting out what he still needs. He leaves behind his school supplies, his Hogwarts and Quidditch robes, his cauldron, his parchment, his quills, most of his textbooks, relics of a schoolboy life that Harry, though still only 16, at least for four more days, has already left behind, symbols of the childhood he no longer has the luxury of living. He's taking the essentials and the things that will help him on the road. Muggle clothes, his invisibility cloak, his potion-making kit, key books, and of course his wand. Touchingly, he's taken some items of sentimental value, too. The photo album Hagrid gave him and letters that hold meaning. He's also bringing in his backpack's front pocket the Marauder's Map and the locket bearing R.A.B.'s note, placing the locket there from the book because of what it had cost to attain it. He begins to flick through the newspapers that he's collected over the summer with Hedwig asleep or faking it by his side, angry over not being able to go outside enough. Poor baby bird Hedwig. Hedwig. Love her. Harry's looking for a particular issue of the paper bearing a note about Charity Burbage's resignation from Hogwarts and the target of Harry's search, a remembrance of Albus Dumbledore written by Albus's lifelong friend, Elphias Doge. It begins with Doge recounting first meeting young Albus, much like Harry met Ron on their first day of school. They were drawn to each other, Doge writes, because they considered themselves outsiders. Him for his dragon pox scars and greenish hue, Albus for arriving, quote, at Hogwarts under the burden of unwanted notoriety. For we learn here his father Percival's, quote, savage and well-publicized attack upon three young muggles. This is a stunner, an eye-opening moment where readers and Harry alike start to realize how little they knew about Dumbledore. Over the course of Hallows, we'll learn that this characterization is misleading and that Percival's attack did not stem from prejudice against muggles, but rather a desire to avenge his daughter, whom the muggle boys had attacked after seeing her do magic, causing her irreparable harm and... Fans have deduced since being introduced to Credence's character in Fantastic Beasts, turning her into an obscurial. Percival could not reveal the truth to authorities because doing so, we'll learn later from Aberforth, would have meant seeing Ariana sent to St. Mungo's to keep others safe from her uncontrollable magical outbursts. Doge writes that Dumbledore did not deny the crime, instead saying he knew his father was guilty. Quote, beyond that, Dumbledore refused to speak of the sad business, and in time we will learn why. Doge writes that many at school believe Percival's actions stemmed from hating muggles and celebrated this fact, but that Albus, quote, never revealed the remotest anti-muggle tendencies. Again, not completely true. We will learn over the course of the story that Grindelwald's pull was strong and that Albus was briefly tempted by Gellert's for the greater good rhetoric before Ariana's tragic death and Albus's own guilt set him on the path of fighting for the rest of his life, for equality and fairness and rights for all. But by the end of Albus's first school year, Doge explains, the boy was such a prodigy that his father's infamy no longer defined him. He'd carved out his own reputation as, quote, nothing more or less than the most brilliant student ever seen at the school. He was generous with his help and his tutelage, Doge writes, and, quote, he confessed to me in later life that he knew even then that his greatest pleasure lay in teaching. It was not, as we'll learn, a direct path to that calling, nor a temptation-free one, even once there. Dumbledore won every prize, Doge says, and began corresponding with the notable magical minds of the day, like Nicholas Flamel, Nicolas, Nicolas Flamel, <laughs> who played a role in Sorcerer's Stone and seems poised to play a big one in the crimes of Grindelwald, and Bethilda Bagshot, who will play a sizable role over the course of this book. Maggie. Albus seemed bound for career as Minister of Magic. But Doge says that Albus, quote, never had ministerial ambitions. Well, as we will learn, 
He refused the job every time because he learned from his time with Grindelwald that he couldn't trust himself with power. Doge writes next of Aberforth and the brother's strained, but he says unfairly portrayed relationship, blaming the strain on Aberforth being outshone. In reality, we will learn that the rift stemmed from Dumbledore's relationship with Grindelwald and Ariana's ensuing death. And family deaths, sadly, are the next subject of Doge's obituary, as he reveals that his planned post-grad jaunt around the world <laughs> with Albus was derailed by the death of Albus's mother, Kendra, a death cause we'll later learn by Ariana's uncontrollable magic. Uh-huh. Albus stayed home to care for his brother and sister, and, quote, his letters told me little of his day-to-day life, which I guess to be frustratingly dull for such a brilliant wizard. Not exactly, dog breath! This was the period we will learn in which Grindelwald came into Albus's life, transporting him to another plane of possibility, challenging his mind and stirring his affections. And then Ariana died. Quote, all those closest to Albus, and I count myself one of that lucky number, agreed that Ariana's death and Albus's feeling of personal responsibility for it, though of course he was guiltless, left their mark upon him forever. Doge, my guy, you are off in almost every respect here. Doggy. (laughs) Doggy Doge. Doge cites Ariana's poor health, showing what a mystery her true condition and the cause of it really was even to those who knew Albus so well, Mm -hmm. or at least thought they did. But Albus was not guiltless, and his regret over his role in Ariana's death, as we will learn, defined the rest of his life. These, we can deduce, are the recollections that tormented him when he consumed the potion in the cave. Doge reveals that Ariana's death created a rift between the brothers, the one that they'd worked to close in later years, priming us for Aberforth's impending role in the story. He paints a picture of Dumbledore's future achievements, including his dragon blood discoveries and whiz and gamut judgments and legendary duel with Grindelwald. Quote, a turning point in magical history to match the introduction of the international statute of secrecy or the downfall of he who must not be named. A direct parallel to what Harry is trying to do, and yet not one that Dumbledore and Harry ever discussed. We've known about the Grindelwald duel since Harry read about it on Dumbledore's chocolate frog card on his very first train ride to Hogwarts. But seeing it referenced here forces us to consider the tragedy of it going undiscussed as Harry and Dumbledore labored over how to beat Voldemort. Doge concludes by saying that, quote, Albus Dumbledore was never proud or vain. He could find something to value in anyone however apparently insignificant or wretched. The first part, like much of Doge's recollections, might not be quite right. We love those boasts, though. He's a boastful character. That's part of his charm. The thing that he does is he won't boast first, but if there's an opportunity to boast or if someone says something and he gets the chance to be like, well, as you know, I am super intelligent, he'll say something like that. But the second part is Dumbledore's essence in a sentence, a celebration of his instincts born from pain and loss, to give second chances and to try to see the best in people. He died as he lived, Doge concludes, unknowingly quoting the mantra that Albus and Grindelwald shared as they plotted their domination, working always for the greater good. When Harry finishes reading, he gazes at the accompanying picture of Dumbledore, who, even in print, gives Harry the impression of X-raying him. Harry feels, quote, sadness mingled with a sense of of humiliation. Because ever since he's read this, and read it again and again and again, he's had to confront the fact that despite thinking he knew Dumbledore quite well, he didn't know the headmaster at all. Now, there are a lot of different ways to feel about what Harry is thinking here, especially with full clarity of what's to come. We can agree with Harry and lament that Dumbledore didn't share more with Harry. 
not only about Harry's impending discoveries and journey, but about Dumbledore's own past. Mm-hmm. We can note that the man who wrote this obituary and claimed to know Dumbledore so well didn't really know him at all either, despite a lifelong history together. We can observe that it may not ever really be possible to know another person and how deflating it is to consider that prospect. And we can also note that despite all that Harry never learned about Dumbledore's life, he still knew him in the ways that mattered most. He knew to trust in his vision. He knew to trust in his love. But that kind of clarity is many hundreds of pages away for Harry. Mm -hmm. Here, he is dealing with the reverberations of considering how little he and Dumbledore really shared. Quote, It was as though he had sprung into being as Harry had known him, venerable and silver-haired and old. Harry is stewing in his own regret over never having asked Dumbledore about his duel against Grindelwald or about anything else other than the one personal question he'd ever broached. What do you see when you look into the mirror? Harry asked him in stone. I? I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. (laughs) Harry knew even then that this was not entirely truthful. And he'll come to believe by book's end that Dumbledore would have seen his family, just as Harry had. In the trailers for The Crimes of Grindelwald, we see an adult Dumbledore gazing into the mirror of Erised and seeing Grindelwald. Remember what the mirror shows, your heart's deepest and most desperate desire. Dumbledore kept a lot from Harry. Harry failed to ask many things many times. But in some respects, at least, Dumbledore did show that part of his heart to Harry when he spoke to Harry about the strength of Harry's love and the power of family and choice. Dumbledore's lessons were always informed by his own pain, and he projected that pain, but also the love that informed it, onto Harry time and time again. Harry tears out the obituary and tucks it into one of the books he's packing. He wanted this piece of Dumbledore with him. As he resumes preparing his room for his departure, he noticed something he'd missed in today's prophet. Quote, Dumbledore, the truth at last? To tease for Rita Skeeter's impending Dumbledore biography, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, branded as, quote, the shocking story of the flawed genius that promises to strip, quote, away the popular image of serene, silver-bearded wisdom to reveal, quote, the disturbed childhood, the lawless youth, the lifelong fuse, and the guilty secrets that Dumbledore carried to the grave. Can I just say? Yeah. Great title for a book. It's really good. I would buy it. Great head, great subhead. Like, listen, can you tell that J.K. Rowling knows a few things about publishing? <laughs> Ah, so this is why the old hag had a quill out at Dumbledore's funeral. Inside the paper, there's an interview with Rita in which she discusses her 900-page <laughs> book completed four weeks after his death. George R. R. Martin, where are you, my guy? Take notes. Listen, here's the thing. The quill <laughs> writes on its own, but still. It's channeling her, though. 904 weeks is actually like you're lying. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I know. Yeah, she's know. Rita. <laughs> no, but even like if you were just going to write a book of lies, I actually don't think it's humanly possible to write 900 pages in four weeks. Listen. She's incredible. She gets it done. She's fucking prolific. Prolific. <laughs> Doge, we learn, has attacked the book for containing, quote, less fact than a chocolate frog card. <laughs> Man, listen, keep the chocolate frogs out of this. Like, what did they ever do? Yeah, why are you taking shits on the chocolate frogs? Frankly, we've learned a lot from them. We've learned a lot from them. They're an important part of wizarding childhood culture. Can we just leave them out of this? Yeah, also candy is delicious. Jesus Christ, man. 
tough look for our guy given how factually off his own remembrances are. <laughs> yeah. And how concerning the instinct to besmirch the fine institution of chocolate frogs is. Come on. Just just leave the chocolate frogs at us. Rita denies the charge that four weeks was an irresponsible (laughs) rush job. In essence, copping to bribing and intimidating sources. (laughs) Just like, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what I If you don't accept, no. Yeah. But also noting how many people were eager, eager to dish on Dumbledore and how, quote, not everyone thought he was so wonderful, you know. He trod on an awful lot of important toes. She teases a source that would spark unrivaled envy. Quote, one who has never spoken in public before and who was close to Dumbledore during the most turbulent and disturbing phases of his youth. The Tilda Bagshot, we'll learn. She refuses to reveal specifics, but drops a doozy of a tease. Quote, let's just say that nobody hearing him rage against you-know-who would have dreamed that he dabbled in the dark arts himself in his youth. And for a wizard who spent his later years pleading for tolerance— he wasn't exactly broad-minded when he was younger. Yes, Albus Dumbledore had an extremely murky past, not to mention that very fishy family which he worked so hard to keep hushed up. Not the goat-fiddling brother or the muggle-attacking <laughs> father, she adds, but the mother and the sister. Quote, A little digging uncovered a positive nest of nastiness, adding, It's no wonder Dumbledore never talked about how his nose got broken. A tease for what we'll soon learn is the funeral side fight between the brothers. But what of his great achievements? What of his defeat of Grindelwald, Betty asks? Quote, I'm afraid those who go dewy-eyed over Dumbledore's spectacular victory must brace themselves for a bombshell or perhaps a dung bomb. <laughs> Very dirty business indeed. In conclusion, Rita teases her coverage of Dumbledore's, quote, sinister relationship with Harry and the mysterious circumstances surrounding Dumbledore's death. Instant purchase on Amazon.com. I can't wait for the ebook. I've got it in ebook and regular book form. I want to read it the second <laughs> clock turns midnight on release date. Yeah, you want the hardback of this one. I want them for both. Your collection. I want the yeah. I want the ebook because I want it immediately, right. and then I want the hardback to have up there. Our girl really knows how to own a book tour she, here. She is slaying it on the book tour. <laughs> when Harry finishes reading, quote, revulsion and fury rose in him like vomit. He is, as usual, disgusted by Rita and what he perceives as her lies. Many readers, yours truly included, felt this way too upon first reading these two remembrances. Doge's may be a fond retelling, but the sheer volume of information that we'd never heard before called so much into question. Meanwhile, the nature of the second article, even from a malicious yellow journalist hack, yeah, like Rita Skeeter, Jason's favorite, called the bile forth into our throats. Harry has clearly spent much of this summer wondering if he really knew Dumbledore. Uh And now readers must wonder that, too. Harry balls the paper up and throws it across his room, and he bellows, lies! But there's a small part of you, the reader, wondering here if any of this could be true. Wondering if you can stomach the cost of Dumbledore's legacy being called into question. Praying that it won't last. That this will be proven false in mere moments. And then having your faith tested time and time again over the course of the story. By Auntie Muriel, by Rita's actual book, by Aberforth, by Snape's memories. We, like Harry, had our frustrations with Dumbledore, but we loved him, worshipped him even, trusted in him. And calling that trust into question calls everything into question, for readers and Harry alike, causes the world to again unravel in a way that Dumbledore's death made it. And as Harry sits, he picks up the mirror shard, quote, thinking, thinking of Dumbledore and the lies with which Rita Skeeter was defaming him. A flash of brightest blue. 
Harry freezes, and his finger slips. He thinks that he's seen Albus Dumbledore's eye in the mirror. And when he looks again, he sees only his own green eye. This blue eye will appear to Harry again in a moment of great need in the bowels of Malfoy Manor, and will prove to belong to Aberforth Dumbledore, Albus's brother. But here, Harry can't know that. Here, he can only feel another fresh surge of loss and despair. Quote, if anything was certain, it was that the bright blue eyes of Albus Dumbledore would never pierce him again. Chapter 3, The Dursleys Departing. There's the fallout from Dumbledore's death, the fallout from Voldemort's choices, the fallout from so many of the recent moves and countermoves, and then there's the fallout from a fractured near-lifelong relationship. Harry's 16 years with the Dursleys. As Vernon summons Harry by a shout, Oi! Harry tucks the shard of mirror in his backpack, and a good thing, too. As Vernon begins ranting at Harry, Petunia, and Dudley in tow, we realize that a plan has been put in motion to remove the Dursleys from Privet Drive for their own protection, as we've done before. Put yourself for a moment in the Dursleys' shoes. Undeniably, they've treated Harry horribly. They've kept the truth of his identity from him. They've threatened him time and again with banishment from their home, deprivation from the wizarding world, even physical violence. They've never been kind and often been actively cruel. Yes. But they did take him in. They did, however, begrudgingly, however inadequately, honor the basic tenet of Dumbledore's request. Despite falling far short of the heart of his ask, as he noted to them in Prince when he chastised their failure to truly raise him as their own and give him not a house but a home, in refusing to refuse, they introduced into their lives the very magic they feared and that Petunia, as we'll learn, secretly desired, putting themselves and their son in peril. And now they have to abandon the home they've worked to protect, the home that sealed the protective magic of Lily's sacrifice around Harry because Harry's presence in their lives has made them targets. Vernon, struggling as always to balance reason and rage, <laughs> resents this, but also refuses to acknowledge it. At the moment, he's changed his mind, saying he doesn't think they're in danger and won't go. I believe it a plot to get the house. Even for Vernon Dursley, <laughs> this is among the toughest of tough looks and a real wrench in the try-to-see-it-from-their-side plea that we often put forth. One of the many byproducts of Harry's years of trials and torments is that he's now completely unafraid to speak his mind. I've already got a house, he says. <laughs> My godfather left me one, so why would I want this one? All the happy memories? That's a great line. We learn. The Kingsley and Arthur, the latter a most unwelcome guest in the Dursley home after his invasion via fireplace in Goblet of Fire, swung by Privet Drive earlier in the summer to explain to the Dursleys that once Harry turns 17, the protective charm will break, exposing them as well as him. The order is sure that Voldemort will go for the Dursleys, either to torture them for information about Harry's whereabouts or to use them as bait to lure Harry. This is a good moment. Quote, Uncle Vernon's and Harry's eyes met. Harry was sure that in that instant, they were both wondering the same thing. Wondering, would Harry go to save them if they were in fact used in that way? That Harry has to wonder this at all speaks to how poorly they have treated him. Yes. But we know Harry well enough to say that ultimately the answer would be yes. Our guy has a saving people thing. We will see in the rumor requirement that Harry can't even let Draco Malfoy and Gregory Goyle come to harm. He's too motivated by a desire to help and heal and save to ever let someone who isn't purely evil, his true enemy, yes. die if he can save them. The Dursleys have never nurtured him, but they're not his enemies. For no. better and mostly for worse, they're a part of his life. And Vernon asks why the ministry can't help them instead of the order. 
Quote, it seems to me that as innocent victims guilty of nothing more than harboring a marked man, we ought to qualify for government protection. And Harry laughs at this perfectly typical instinct of Vernon's to put hope in the establishment, the familiar that he can latch onto in a strange new world. And Vernon X asks why they can't have Kingsley himself. After seeing him on TV and learning that he's protecting the Muggle Prime Minister, he wants the best of the best. Can't have Kingsley. So he wants to see CVs, resumes for Ashton Jones and Daedalus Diggle, who are actually going to be their protectors. It's a hysterical display, but also, again, their lives are being uprooted. Yeah. They're being forced to leave their home. They're being told that the most feared wizard in the world will come for them. It's not exactly deciding what to snack on yes. over afternoon tea or whether to give Marge and Ripper more brandy. But Harry's patience has run out. The accidents on TV are not accidents. Voldemort's kill muggles for sport. Even the fog comes from the Dementors, quote, and if you can't remember what they are, ask your son. When Dudley covers his mouth and asks if there are more, Harry tells him, there are probably thousands now, mm-hmm. quote, seeing as they feed off fear and despair. That fog is, the, as we've noted before, is the Dementor sex funk, and you're just walking around in it. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. The Dursleys are in such a fascinating position, repulsed by or in Petunia's case, secretly drawn in by, magic, but exposed to just enough of it due to Harry's station in their life to be able to, despite what Vernon's stubbornness in this conversation might indicate, to appreciate what they're facing. Harry reminds them what last happened when they tried to outrun magical beings. Quote, there was a brief silence in which the distant echo of Hagrid smashing down a wooden front door seemed to reverberate through the intervening years. Vernon isn't quite content. What about his job, he asks. What about Dudley's school? Again, these are actually fair questions. Mm -hmm. But to Harry, who's leaving school and almost everything else behind this is woefully naive. And he clarifies the stakes as clearly as he can. Quote, they will torture and kill you like they did my parents. Upon which Dudley says, Dad, I'm going with these order people. Harry tells Dudley that for the first time in his life, he's making sense. But this is a little too sad to celebrate. Dudley's decision is informed by his own trauma. With the pig's tail, with the dementors, still Harry knows that the battle is over. Vernon and Petunia would never let Dudley go without them. He tells them to be ready to depart in five minutes. Harry leaves them and reflects, quote, the prospect of parting, probably forever, from his aunt, uncle, and cousin was one that he was able to contemplate mm-hmm. quite cheerfully. But there was nevertheless a certain awkwardness in the air. What did you say to one another at the end of 16 years' solid dislike? Mm. Good question. How do you account in five minutes— for the fallout of a decade and a half of lies and outbursts and mutual resentment. Dumbledore gave the Dursleys their comeuppance in prints. Will Harry give them more here? He gives Hedwig some treats and tells her that they're leaving soon, quote, really soon, and then he'll be able to fly again. Just devastating in light of what's to come. And then when the doorbell rings, he goes down to say his farewells. They run through the plan. The Dursleys are leaving before Harry and thus before the charm breaks. They will leave without using magic to avoid triggering a false charge of Harry using underage magic in their home, driving 10 miles and then disapparating. Truly incredible to imagine the Dursleys disapparating. <laughs> Quote, you know how to drive, I take it? Unbelievable. Diggle-ass Vernon, Unbelievable which is shit. iconic. Very clever of you, sir. Very clever. I personally would be utterly bamboozled by all those buttons and knobs. And he believes, as the text describes, that he's flattering Vernon, who is, of course, yes. horrified. He's Quote, like- Visibly losing confidence in the plan with every word. (laughs) Classic JK here injecting such comedy into such a tense moment. Can't even drive, Vernon's muttering. They next tell Harry that 
his plan departure has changed. No more sidelong apparition with Mad-Eye, as he's been expecting. He's to wait for his guard and Moody's explanation for the change. And then Diggle's pocket watch screams, hurry up! And we learn that they're attempting to sink Harry's impending departure with the Dursleys' disapparation. Hestia begins to excuse herself and Diggle to give the family space for a private farewell. But as Harry is telling her that there's no need, Vernon proves the point, issuing the cold, well, this is goodbye then, boy, and briefly swinging out his arm for a handshake before retracting it, absent the consummation of this small gesture of respect. When Petunia, who is deliberately avoiding looking at Harry, asks Dudley if he's ready, Dudley, unmoving and with his mouth ajar, quote, reminding Harry a little of the giant grop, says, I don't understand. And then, in one of the series' most genuinely, shockingly heartfelt and tender moments— He points at Harry and says, why isn't he coming with us? For all the hatred and prejudice that has boiled between Harry and Dudley over the years, they've been an ever-present part of each other's lives. They never grew up with brotherly affection, but they were raised side by side, never as equals, but by definition as peers. Dudley's horrid Dementor experience impacted him in a way that Harry only here begins to see and understand, humanizing him and expanding his worldview and self-awareness. Dudley asks where Harry will go. He's genuinely concerned for his cousin, who clearly is facing a terrible danger. Dudley does not understand much about the magical world, but what he's seen directly has frightened him greatly. And he understands that the things that kept Harry safe are about to melt away. The boy who was so often concerned only with his own gain and greed is now concerned for something and someone else. It's a stunning twist and one that forcefully reinforces one of the story's core messages. Redemption is there for those who choose to seek it. The homie Hestia is not moved by what she's witnessing, but rather bewildered and disturbed by Vernon and Petunia's lack of awareness of Harry's destination and seeming indifference to his fate. She's outraged by Vernon's, quote, some of your lot phrasing and lack of appreciation for who Harry is, what he represents, what he's done. From the book, don't these people realize what you've been through, what danger you were in? The unique position you hold in the hearts of the anti-Voldemort movement? Or, uh, no, they don't, said Harry. They think I'm a waste of space, actually, but I'm used to. I don't think you're a waste of space, said Dudley. If Harry had not seen Dudley's lips move, he might not have believed it. But Dudley is bright red, confirming that he said the words. From the book, Harry was embarrassed and astonished himself. Well, er, thanks, Dudley. After struggling for a moment, Dudley expresses at last what he's come to realize, come to appreciate. Quote, you saved my life. And as Harry looks at Dudley and reflects on how little contact he and his cousin have had this summer and last, since the Dementor attack, in other words, he realizes how the event changed him and realizes that Dudley might have left that cup of tea not as a booby trap, but as a kindness. He's, quote, rather touched, but also relieved that Dudley seems to have run out of things to say. Petunia, however, has burst into tears and runs to hug Dudley. So sweet, Dudders, she sobbed into his massive chest. (laughs) Such a lovely boy saying thank you. But he hasn't said thank you at all, said Hestia <laughs> indignantly. He only said that he didn't think Harry was a waste of space. Yeah, but coming from Dudley, that's like, I love you, said Harry. And now it's time at last to really part. Diggle wishes Harry luck and tells him, the hopes of the wizarding world rest upon your shoulders. No pressure, my guy. <laughs> Dudley walks toward Harry and sticks out his hand to shake. Blimey, Dudley. Did the Dementor blow a different personality into you? <laughs> they shake. Take care, Big D, Harry says. Dudley nearly smiled. And then it's just Harry and Petunia who seemed unprepared to have found herself alone with her nephew, her sister's son. But there's no tenderness here. She hastily says goodbye and marches out. 
She stopped and looked back. For a moment, Harry had the strangest feeling that she wanted to say something to him. She gave him an odd, tremulous look and seemed to teeter on the edge of speech. But then, with a little jerk of her head, she bustled out of the room after her husband and son. Mal, it is an honor to have you here in our family's podcast studio. There can be no higher pleasure. You sure? None at all. Oh, I'm sure. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads so no one can see what we do. And lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about that wonderful Malfoy family. The grounds that Voldemort uses as his base of operations have been in Malfoy hands for nearly a full millennium. Ever since the family arrived on British soil as part of the invading army led by William the Conqueror, Armand Malfoy, whose family name comes from Old French and translates as bad faith. Wow, similar to my name, which means unfortunate, unlucky soldier or something like that, was a secretive advisor to William, most likely providing magical services. And he received this prime piece of land as a reward. And ever since this ambitious beginning, the Malfoys have remained a powerful, wealthy, and manipulative family in Britain, with notable effects for both the magical and muggle populations. If it sounds odd that the Malfoys might have involved themselves in Muggle society, well, they almost became much more than behind-the-scenes influencers. His rolling rights on Pottermore, quote, though hotly denied by subsequent generations. Here we go, blind yeah! gossip item. <laughs> Get ready! <laughs> there is ample evidence to suggest that the first Lucius Malfoy was an unsuccessful aspirant to the hand of Elizabeth the First. Will this be featured on a season of The Crown at some point? I gotta tell you. My goodness. And some wizarding historians allege that the Queen's subsequent opposition to marriage was due to a jinx placed upon her by the thwarted Malfoy. Wow, this is honestly like <laughs> besmirching Elizabeth's keen political instincts right here. <laughs> That was statecraft, people. My goodness. Tough stuff here. For both Lucius Malfoys, <laughs> the first denied by the queen, the second stripped of his wand and effectively his ancestral home. Even with the first Lucius's rejection, the Malfoys actually protested the international statute of secrecy at first because they didn't want to remove themselves from Muggle high society. They enjoyed the social circles and riches too much, of course. Slug club precursor, you know? Gate crash that too, I bet. But once it became clear that the statute would pass, they swiftly switched sides and became virulently anti-Muggle. Since that time, no Malfoy family member has married a Muggle or Muggle-born witch or wizard. But the family was also smart about its self-imposed restrictions. Instead of intermarrying like the Gaunts, which led to madness and familial disrepair, the Malfoys were fine coupling with half-bloods and thus maintained both their pure-blood sanctimony and their lofty status. The Malfoys are one of the, quote, sacred 28. Woo! <laughs> a description given to the 28 British family is considered truly pure blood. My God. By the 1930s. Imagine the dating app for the sacred 28. <laughs> you have matched with Lucius Malfoy again. Even tougher to get on than Raya. <laughs> And as we know from Lucius and Draco in the series, they lord that elitism above all others not on that list. 
Unlike some of their peers, however, the Malfoys have never sought public-facing positions of power. Like Tywin Lannister, they prefer to work by pulling strings from behind the curtain. Rolling writes of their illicit dealings, quote, It is often said of the Malfoy family that you will never find one at the scene of the crime, though their fingerprints might be all over the guilty wand. Woo! You'd think fingerprints would be enough to land someone in Azkaban. <laughs> Whose fingerprints is that on your wand? <laughs> Famous Malfoys throughout the centuries include Nicholas, a 14th century wizard who grew his family's lands by killing neighboring muggles and pretending the murders were the work of the Black Plague. Nick the Dick Malfoy. (laughs) (laughs) Tough look for my guy, Nicholas the Dickless Malfoy. Wow. Straight up mass murderer. Nicholas the Dickless. We might have new binge mode merch on the way, folks. Brutus, who penned a vicious and aggressive anti-muggle periodical. And Abraxas, Draco's grandfather, who was rumored to have been involved in the mysterious removal from office of one Nobby Leach, the first muggle-born minister and presumably an ancestor to Mike Leach. (laughs) (laughs) Nobby. In more recent times, Lucius continued many of the family's traditions as he built on ancestral wealth, posed a powerful anti-Muggle advocate in wizarding circles, and perhaps most notably, did leave fingerprints all over the guilty wand. But after the first wizarding war, Lucius avoided Azkaban, much to Jason's chagrin and due to claims of being put under the imperious curse, and rumor has it, calling in a host of ministry favors. And after the second wizarding war, in which Draco was actively involved in the assassination of Albus Dumbledore, and the Malfoys literally hosted Voldemort at their home, the Malfoys got off free once again. Pretty good. After (laughs) snitching on their fellow Death Eaters in exchange for immunity. Was they the only source of that information? I'm really dying to know. They're the only people (laughs) who's like willing to give up the Death Eaters. Do they need somebody to snitch on the Death Eaters? It's like, just look for the people in the masks with the dark marks on their arms killing people. Guys, there's 10 of them. They're, yeah. It's not hard. <laughs> Draco went on to marry a fellow pureblood, Astoria Greengrass. Shock. Oh, what a shock! <laughs> <laughs> I assume they met on Sacred 28. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we matched 50 times and then finally decided to go through with it. Though Astoria's less fervent views on blood status led to tension with Draco's parents. Astoria died when her first and only son, the homie... Scorpius Malfoy. Scorpius Malfoy. <laughs> you gotta see. You gotta see. Cursed, see cursed you gotta see. Cursed child not canon in order to get that one. Canon adjacent. Yeah. Was just an adolescent because she suffered from a blood maledictction, the same condition. Uh oh. We believe we can deduce that affected Nagini some decades prior. A further note about the Malfoy home is that Rowling has discussed a deleted scene from the books set to take place in either chamber or Goblet, in which Malfoy strolls his family grounds talking with classmate Theodore Knott. She has said that the scene she had in mind would show, quote, all sorts of stories that the Death Eaters tell about how this baby boy survived the Dark Lord's attack. Like all non-Harry point of view chapters, this look at another private aspect of Wizarding Britain would have yielded fascinating insight. And this one in particular would have probably inspired plenty of theories for fans to obsess over. Jason? Yes. We died as we lived, working always for the greater podcast. So let's split our nuggets 
if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallow's chapters one through three. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one, the identity of the wailing prisoner that Voldemort mentions at Malfoy Manor is unclear in the moment, but we'll learn in time that it is Ollivander. Brilliant seed planting, of course, from Rowling as his wails and his coded acknowledgement come as Voldemort is discussing the new knowledge that he's gained and just before he addresses his need for a new wand. Number two, what, you might be wondering, did Petunia teeter on the edge of saying to Harry as she issued her feeble goodbye to him at Privet Drive? Well, J.K.R. addressed just that in a 2007 Leaky Cauldron chat. Quote, I think that for one moment she trembled on the verge of wishing Harry luck, that she almost acknowledged that her loathing of his world and of him was born out of jealousy, but she couldn't do it. Years of pretending that, quote, normal, was best, had hardened her too much. We will learn much more about that jealousy in The Prince's Tale. Sadly, Petunia and Harry will never have the chance to speak openly of this together. Number three. Harry and Dudley, however, did stay in touch. Incredible twist! At least in a fashion from J.K.R. on her old site. Quote, I know that after Dudley's brave attempt at reconciliation at the start of Deathly Hallows, the two cousins would have remained on Christmas card terms for the rest of their lives and that Harry would have taken his family to visit Dudley's when they were in the neighborhood. Occasions dreaded by James, <laughs> Albus, and Lily. Truly a delight, and shouts to Dudley. It's truly a wonderful thing. It's just also, it's, it's, it's just like shows you that life is long, and yes. people's relationships to each other change over time. Yes. Sometimes for the worse, but sometimes for the better. Sometimes for the better. Number four. Gotta ask. Really found myself thinking about this this sure. time for some reason. Could our guy, Adelbert Waffling come into play in the Fantastic Beasts film franchise. Here's why we ask. In Doja's obit, he lists three names, calls out specifically three people among Dumbledore's celebrated correspondents, and he lists them in close succession. Flamel, Bagshot, and Waffling. Waffling! <laughs> Flamel and Bagshot play meaningful roles in the original series, and Flamel looks poised, as we said, to play a bigger role still in the second Fantastic Beast film and maybe beyond. So if Waffling was mentioned adjacent to those two names, is that placement a subtle primer that we should expect to learn more about the work that the magical theoretician and author of magical theory did with Dumbledore? I'm intrigued and excited for some time, hopefully, with Adelbert Waffling. <laughs> Give us more time with the Waffle Master. Number five. When Voldemort sends Wormtail to silence their prisoner, Ollivander, we get this description. Quote, he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. This is a fleeting description, but it serves a real function, reminding us of the silver hand that Voldemort gave Wormtail in the graveyard and goblet, and the words that Dumbledore issued to Harry and Azkaban about the life debt that Pettigrew will owe Harry moving forward after Harry spared him. Later in Hallows, Harry will remind Pettigrew of this debt, causing the silver fingers grasping Harry's neck to loosen, then turn upon their own master strangling him to death. It's also a great example of what makes writing good, and that is economy and efficiency of language. Every word carrying some part of the weight yes. of the narrative. Nothing wasted, except for Wormtail's entire existence. But <laughs> His entire other, life. Other than that. Number six, there is a lot of Grindelwald dual talk in this section. Tons. In both Doge's obit and Rita's heaping pile of libel, 
and Harry's reflections. Just a couple tastes here. Quote, those who witnessed it have written of the terror and the awe they felt as they watched these two extraordinary wizards do battle, Doge says. Ah, but what does Rita say? Quote, all I'll say is, don't be so sure that there really was the spectacular duel of legend. After they've read my book, people may be forced to conclude that Grindelwald simply conjured away a handkerchief from the end of his wand and came quietly. Given how little we know about this specific event, the duel itself, even after all of the Dumbledore revelations to come in Deathly Hallows, and given the early hints that we have from the Fantastic Beast film franchise, <laughs> we cannot help but wonder if Rita's description about the Dumbledore and Grindelwald duel might not actually wind up being at least in part true. I think that that's, I lean that way. I have no I evidence for this, too. but I lean that way too. And it, it's not necessarily an indictment of Dumbledore in any way. It's just, we can't help but assume that something else is at play here, yes. something more than we know. When Dumbledore keeps saying to Newt in these trailers that he can't move against Grindelwald, is he speaking just of the emotional weight? Is there something else at play? Yeah. There's a moment we see their hands grasp in the mirror. I've found myself wondering if an unbreakable vow could be at play here in some bam, capacity. Bam, bam. I don't know. I'm just starting to think about it. The wild thing is, look, this book came out in 2007. Yeah. It's 2018. We're about to get new information about this. That is incredible that we are still experiencing this story and still learning new things. We can't wait to talk about it all with you at Binge Mode. Number seven. This is a doozy. It's a doozy, folks. <laughs> Let's do some, and I know we've all been dying to do this. Let's do some detective work to figure out when Voldemort and Bellatrix did the nasty and conceived a child. Yes. Bellatrix didn't escape from Azkaban until the middle of Harry's fifth year, and she's probably, probably not pregnant during the Department of Mysteries battle, which takes place in June 1996. Mm -hmm. So the dicking down <laughs> must have occurred after that date. And we know that Bellatrix isn't pregnant by the time Harry and co. are at Malfoy Manor in Hallows, which is in March 1998. By the way, we are assuming that this is a normal kind of nine-month gestation period and a normal insemination process, and that everything about this is as we expect a pregnancy to be. Mm -hmm. So if we say that the latest Bellatrix could have had her child was, say, December 1997, then she and Voldemort would have had to have had sex by March 1997 at the latest. <laughs> this scene in Malfoy Minor takes place in July 1997, though, which means that Bellatrix has either already birthed Delphi by this point— is that why she wasn't on the tower at the end of Prince? Or, at the very least, has already become pregnant. It certainly places all the descriptions of her speaking to Voldemort in loving, reverent tones in a new light, especially when she says, there can be no higher pleasure than having him there. But only because he refuses to go down on her, then there could be higher pleasure. Do you think she asked? Man, that's for the kicker. Yet she still has to sit in the middle of the table and not her lover's side. And she has to endure taunts from the present or future father of her child. What did you expect? And we have to imagine the cuck Rodolphus is at this meeting, too. Just like listening to his <laughs> wife brag about being dicked down by fucking Voldemort. <laughs> Tough stuff all around. One of the things I'm most looking forward to with discussing Cursed Child he is who must not go down. Yeah. <laughs> just being like, Delphi! Man, can I'm we? I'm here to help. I'm, I'm here in the room, Delphi. Can we just? Very tough. Mal, there have been too many mistakes where the house cup is concerned. Some of them have been my own. Yeah, like when you wouldn't let me give Crookshanks the win. Why are we putting this all on me? 
This was there were other people there also objecting to this. That Tom Riddle has wins is due more to my own errors than to his triumphs. Yet every episode, we're going to honor the prisoner idea who captivated us the most. And today we're dishing out some last minute points and awarding the House Cup too. The Dark Lord Voldemort. Had to be done. Yeah, yeah. Had, had to be done. Look, with Dumbledore out of the way, Voldemort is beginning his full-scale infiltration of the Ministry of Magic, learning in this section that his man Yaxley is so fucking eager to please. We get it. You're working hard. We all work hard, Yaxley. It was impossibly hard. But anyway, he's placed the thickness <laughs> under the Imperious the Curse. Thick. This is big. It's big. For Voldy and the Death Eaters. Though he doesn't know that Dumbledore gave the order he learns via Snape. The true date that Harry will be moved out of number four Privet Drive and starts to plan accordingly. He also wrecks the Malfoys, taking Lucius's wand as well as Malfoy Manor. Kind of talks dirty to Bella at the dinner table. There's some subtext there in his little sideways head tilt yes. and his higher pleasure yes, talk. Bella. And we know just from what's written in these chapters— that he has a key prisoner in his control. We won't learn until later that it's Ollivander, but even without knowing that identity here, we know that he has someone key in the cellar. He removes a muggle-loving teacher and propagandist, a real enemy, in his mind, from the board and then feeds his pet Horcrux Nagini a hearty meal. A deeply evil man, but at least a responsible pet owner? Listen. Very tough stuff. (laughs) (gasps) And though we don't see him receiving this information or reacting to it, we must assume that he is absolutely oh, fucking he loves, loving he loves this shit. seeing Dumbledore's reputation besmirched and tarnished in the press. He still doesn't understand anything that will allow Harry to prove victorious in the end. But in this moment, yes. there are wins upon wins for Voldy in the short term. Well, friends, we personally would be utterly bamboozled by all those buttons and knobs. But thankfully, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, are not. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing chapters four through six of Deathly Hallows. Until then, remember, the dedication of this podcast is split seven ways. To Isaac, to Cram, to Milton, to Halo, to Cahill, to Joe Rowling, and to you. Yes. If you have stuck with binge mode until the very end. Who's in the bathroom? I am. God, is someone in here? In a matter of a moment's peace. Jesus, Lucius, you think you'd build a mansion with more than one bathroom? This is ridiculous. Also, why does the Dark Lord take 45-minute shits? This is crazy. As Death Eaters, I can never be thankful for what I have given them. Okay. All of you listen to me. Do not go in there for a good amount of time until the scent of my feces has dissipated. We meet in one hour in the dining room.